All right. Well, we are in John chapter 17, and today's message is entitled God's Measure of Success. If you've been with us, you know we're going verse by verse through the whole Gospel of John. And Jesus has spent the last few chapters of John encouraging his disciples. He's preparing them for his departure, and he's preparing them for their upcoming persecution. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 20, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, then they will also persecute you. So he told his disciples how some of them would even get persecuted and even put to death by people who believed that they were serving God by doing so. People were so zealous for the Lord and for um, teaching against the blasphemy they thought the disciples would proclaim that they would be put to death. Then in John chapter 16, we read of seven things to remember during suffering. And God told us why we should remember those things. In John chapter 16, verse 33, He said, These things I have spoken to you, that in Me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And that finished Jesus' teaching to His disciples. And if you missed any of that, feel free to go back and watch on YouTube and, and, and get refreshed. Or just go back on YouTube to watch the kids from last week because that was so fun and so cute. We can always do that more. So now in chapter 17, Jesus is going to pray to the Father. But I want us to think through how Jesus understands that He is about to be arrested in the garden. He understands he's just around the corner from the cross. And so, as we approach this chapter, Jesus understands that he is approaching his death. And so, with that in mind, we're going to read through chapter 17 and see Jesus' prayer. And as he's approaching his death, he's, in a sense, evaluating his life, his three years of public ministry. And he's going to mention some things that he accomplished or he did to be successful in the Father's eyes. And I think for you and I, it's a fantastic opportunity for us to take a look at our own life, to see if we measure up in being successful in God's eyes rather than successful in the world's eyes. So with that, John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for Himself. Verse 1, Jesus spoke these words. He lifted up His eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. The hour or time of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion is finally here. Three times already in the Gospel of John, Jesus said, My hour has not yet come. It's not time yet. But now the wait is over. Jesus says, Now the hour has come. All of Jesus' earthly ministry, it culminates to this point of going to the cross. His death. And so Jesus prays, glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. To glorify means to exalt or to praise or to give honor to. And as Jesus heads for the cross, both God the Father and God the Son will be glorified through the cross. We read about this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, where it says, And Jesus, being found in appearance as a man... He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted or glorified him 
and given him the name which is above every name, and that at that name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Kind of interesting here as we look at this salvation that God has provided for us and Jesus is glorified because he's given the name above every name. Jesus is glorified because all creation will bow down and worship him. And God the Father is glorified as all the creation confesses Jesus is Lord. Both working together in salvation and both being glorified through their work of bringing salvation. And so Jesus continues praying in verse 2 of our text today. Jesus says, As you have given Him, talking about Himself, as you have given Him authority over all flesh, that He should give eternal life to as many as you have given Him. So Jesus is praying for Himself, but He's talking about Himself in the third person here. And Jesus reminds us here that God the Father gives you and I to Him. That He is involved in salvation. And then Jesus gives salvation, gives eternal life to you and I. They're both involved together. Now look at verse 3. Jesus prays, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is one of my favorite Bible verses because it reveals what eternal life is all about. And if you like to take notes, this is your first fill in the blank. Eternal life is all about knowing God. That's what eternal life is all about. You see, when we think about heaven, the best part is not the streets of gold. It's not our brand new bodies. It's not even the end of sin and death. The best part about heaven is the knowledge of God and spending eternity growing in that knowledge. Spending eternity knowing God more. Growing deeper in that relationship. We see this idea of knowing God and yet pursuing Him even more in the life of Moses. Moses said to God in Exodus chapter 33 verse 13 in the New Living Translation, it says, If it is true that you look favorably on me, let me know your ways so I may understand you more fully and continue to enjoy your favor. So Moses was saying, God, because I know you, and because of your grace, let me know you more. Let me know you deeper. Let me know you greater. And that leads up to Moses' bold request a few verses later in Exodus 33, verse 18, where Moses said, please, show me your glory. God, show me your glory. Moses had already talked with God many times. He had already received the Ten Commandments at this point. And yet Moses wanted more. But he didn't didn't want more honor. He didn't want more authority. What Moses wanted was simply to see God's glory. To experience Him on a deeper level. To have a closer, more intimate relationship with the Lord. And I love that example. You see, it teaches us that knowing God is not a chore to complete but a relationship to nurture. Knowing God isn't something that we check off the box and say, okay, I know Him. Now I don't have to do that anymore. I don't have to grow closer to Him anymore. Imagine how your spouse would feel if you told them that. Okay, wife, 
I know you. <laughs> We're good. <laughs> that wouldn't be a very fun relationship. And, and see, we get this idea back in John 15 where Jesus tells us to abide in Him. It's not a, it's a once and done thing. But the idea of abiding in Christ is something we continue to do. We continue abiding. We're never finished abiding. We're never finished knowing God. And so Jesus prays to the Father. And He prays that we all may have eternal life, which is to know God the Father and to know Jesus Christ the Son. He continues praying in verse 4. Jesus says, I have glorified you on the earth. In all that Jesus did, He glorified the Father. When people saw Jesus perform miracles, they were amazed. And then it says, and they glorified God. Whenever Jesus did something miraculous, it, it always glorified God the Father. And here, this is our first measure of success. Jesus was successful because He glorified the Father. And for you and I, if we want to be successful in God's eyes, we should ask ourselves, do I glorify the Father? Do I glorify the Father? Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, He says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your God, your Father, in heaven. We can be incredible, hardworking, loving people, but if God doesn't get the glory, then it's fruitless. We can be doing the right work, but stealing the credit from the Lord. In the second part of verse 4, Jesus says, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. All of Jesus' ministry, his public ministry, it was done except going to the cross. All, that was all that was left. And on the cross, as he hung there, he would cry out those famous words, It is finished. Jesus completed the work he was sent to do. Can you imagine if Jesus was hanging there on the cross and he said, It is close enough. And he got down. He did most of the work. But he said, you know what? Ouch. I'm going to get down now. I don't like this. Close enough, we'd all go to hell. Right? We'd all go to hell because Jesus is the one that pays for our sin. And if he didn't finish his work by dying on that cross for you and I, then we'd have no one left to pay for our sin. And so, this second measure of success this question we need to ask ourselves is, have I finished my work? If we went to be with the Lord today, could we say as Jesus said, I have finished the work which you have sent me to do, given me to do? Maybe it's something that the Lord put on your heart to accomplish or to do. Maybe it's something you've read in Scripture that is something God calls all of us to be involved in and to do for Him. We don't want to finish this life only to say, well, Lord, I thought about doing the work you gave me to do. Well, Lord, I started the work that you called me to do. We want to finish it. And notice, the work that we are called to do is the work that God gives us to do. Jesus left a lot of hungry, sick, and dead people that he could have fed, healed, or raised back to life. But Jesus didn't come to do all of the work Jesus came to do the work which the Father had given Him to do. I'm not here telling you you need to do all of the work, but you need to do the work that God has called you to do. Look at verse 5 with me. 
Jesus prays and he says, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus mentions how he was with God the Father before the world was created. It reminds us of John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where it says about Jesus, calling Jesus the Word, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. You see, just another reminder, Jesus is not a created being. Jesus is God the Son. Now in verses 6 through 19, Jesus changes gears. He's still praying, but now he's going to pray for his disciples. And so in verse 6, Jesus prays, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. In other words, Jesus revealed God's name to his disciples. And it wasn't simply Jesus' words that revealed God the Father. It was the way that Jesus lived. And so your next fill in the blank, we should ask ourselves, does my lifestyle reveal God to others? The way that I live, am I revealing God to those around me. Now please note, I am not saying that we should live a sinless life in order to show people who God is. That's not what we're called to do. We are called to to repent and turn away from our sin, but the goal of this life is not to become sinless so that the world can say, wow, you're so amazing. Can I please know your God? That's not what he wants us to do. You see, if we strive to honor God by not sinning, we may end up like the Pharisees, who were the role models for the phrase, do as I say, not as I do. One of the best ways to reveal God to others is by being open about our sin and our need for Jesus. That's how people can see who Jesus is. When we are open about our own sin and our own need for Christ. My wife has done a tremendous job helping me understand this truth in parenting. Because I want to look at my kids and I want to get them to stop sinning. Right? I want to look at my kids and I want, I, want to, I want to help them to just obey me perfectly and never sin again. And yet when I try to do that, it's not only a losing battle, but I look like a hypocrite. Because I tell my kids, you can't do that ever again. And they say, Dad, you do it every day. And I'm like, ugh, do as I say, not as I do. And it doesn't go well, right? No, instead, with my kids, I want to try to teach them about my sin. I want to confess to them, guys, look, I messed up. I'm sorry I yelled. I'm sorry I said that. Will you please forgive me? And don't you see that Daddy needs Jesus too? Daddy needs Jesus' grace and forgiveness. And that way, I'm teaching my kids how to view their sin and how to come to Jesus, rather than teaching them how to hide their sin and make excuses. I don't want to teach them that. They already know how to. And so, revealing God to those around us means allowing the people around us to see God's mercy and God's grace in our life and to see our need for it. Jesus continues his prayer for the disciples in verse 6. Jesus says, They, talking about the disciples, were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. 
For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Jesus did not simply give the disciples the word as in the Bible. But Jesus gave them the right words. We think about the many times that Jesus rebuked the disciples. And he was trying to teach them something deeper than just truth. We think about the time at the Sea of Galilee when Jesus told them, let us go to the other side. So they all got in the boat and they get out into the water and the the wind picks up and the waves pick up and they start crashing into the boat. And the disciples all thought they were going to die. And so we pick up in Mark chapter 4, verse 38. And it says, But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose, and he rebuked the wind. And he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? You see, this was a specific word that Jesus gave to the disciples, meant to cut to their hearts, convicting them that they had put their trust in their own sailing abilities. Right? We're fishermen. We've, we've gone through many a storm. Right? You think about these burly guys, and yet they wake Jesus up and they said, do you not care? We're all going to die. Jesus says, that's because your faith is in yourself. Your faith isn't in me. Your faith isn't in my words when I said, let us cross to the other side. My words were not, let us go out and all die in the storm. Right? And so Jesus, He gave them the right words, convicting them. And we read the disciples' reply in the next verse in Mark four forty-one. It says, And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey Him? You see, by those words, the disciples were challenged to believe Jesus was more than just a rabbi, more than just a good teacher, that Jesus is God and He is their Savior. And so for you and I, as we evaluate our lives, we should ask, have my words pointed others to believe in Jesus? Not simply are my words the truth, am I quoting Scripture, but do my words point people, encourage them to believe in Jesus? Jesus continues praying in verse 9. He says, I pray for them, for the disciples. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I think it's kind of amazing here as we remember that Jesus knows he's about to be arrested. He knows he's about to be put to death. And he's worried about his disciples. That's who he's praying for. He says, I pray for them. And he specifically says, I do not pray for the world. He doesn't pray for the politics or the economics. He doesn't pray for world health or for world peace, but he prays for the disciples because people are eternal. Kingdoms and things are temporary. And so Jesus prays for the disciples. And in verse 10, Jesus says, And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these, the disciples, are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. 
As Jesus prays for his disciples, he prays for them to be one, to be united. Now, this doesn't mean that we are all the same, right? We're very distinct and different, and yet we are one. In the world, there's tons of different churches, all kinds of different flavors, and yet we are all united in Christ. Some churches are more traditional. Some are less. Some churches are more expressive in their worship. Others are less. Some teach verse by verse. Others teach more topically. Some churches worship with just a piano and voices, and other churches have three electric guitars and fog machines. Some churches don't meet in person because of COVID. Other churches pack the house. All of these are non-essentials. We're all one, united in Christ. We can be distinct and yet still united. I think about ice cream. You go into Baskin Robbins and there's all those different flavors of ice cream, but they're all ice cream, right? They're all dessert. They're united under the name of Baskin Robbins, even though they taste different and we have our favorites. So too with the churches, right? They have different flavors of worship, but we're all united under the name of Jesus. However, if somebody claims to be part of Jesus' church, but they deny Jesus as God, or they deny Jesus as the only way of salvation, or they claim faith in Jesus is a good starting point, but it's not enough to be saved, well, those are essentials. We could be loving towards those people, but not one with them, because they're not of Christ. They're not of the Jesus of the Bible. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know, as I read that verse, and I was even just this morning, thinking about this text, that word endeavoring really stood out to me. And I realized to endeavor, it implies effort, right? I don't have to endeavor to eat cookies. That's, that's not a hard thing for me to do, right? But here, we're called to endeavor to be united in one spirit under Christ. And so when we measure our own success in life, we should not ask, we should not ask, do others know how right I am in all these non-essentials? No. But instead, we should ask, have I walked worthy of my calling to be united with others in Jesus? Or have I allowed politics or coronavirus or spiritual flavor to divide myself from other believers? You see, it's easy to get along with a God who loves us perfectly. But it's not as easy to get along with a sinner who does things differently than me. And yet that is God's desire for me, for you. God wants us to be united together with other believers, especially the ones that do things differently than us. To be one in Christ. To focus on the essentials so that we can represent Him well. Back to our text in John 17. Jesus prays about His disciples in verse 12. He says, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in Your name. Those whom You gave Me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, 
except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus says that he was successful because he kept those who were his. But Judas, he was the son of perdition. Judas was not lost because Judas was never his. Judas was never saved. Verse 13, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus wanted his disciples to have joy. Even last week during our Christmas devotional, we talked about joy and how joy is different than happiness. Happiness is the result of our circumstances, which constantly change. Joy is the result of Jesus' love, which never changes. God calls us to be joyful because of what He did on the cross and because of the promise of eternal life, of knowing Him. And so we ask ourselves, do I choose joy in the Lord or am I focused on my circumstances? If we want to be successful in God's eyes, we want to choose joy, not focused on the things around us. Verse 14, Jesus prays, He says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. You see, we are called to be in, but not of the world. Think about how God became flesh, so that he could then save us from our sin. He was in the flesh, but not of the flesh. He came into the world, but was not of the world. Pastor Sandy Adams gives us this exhortation. He says, we need to be in the world building bridges to lost people. But if we're of the world, no one will see the need to cross the bridges we build. It's good for us as Christians to rub shoulders with the world so they might see the light of Christ. But we need to make sure that we're shining the light of Christ. Otherwise, the world will only see more darkness. Jesus says in verse 17, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. The word sanctify means to set apart or to make holy. So Jesus, he's saying that he separated himself as he goes to the cross. He set himself aside for that purpose of being sacrificed, giving his life for you and I. And his purpose in doing that is so that you and I too can also be set apart, set apart as his. In the Greek, that Greek word that means sanctify, it's the same word that means holy, but it's in the verb form. And so you might say Jesus holied himself so that we might be holy. And there's honestly no pun intended in that Jesus got literal holes put in his hands and feet. But it was that death of him being set apart, being holied for us that paid for the sin so that you and I can now be set apart as his, set apart as saved, set apart as destined for eternal life. We pick up now in verses 20 through 26 where Jesus now prays for all believers, not just the disciples. 
Jesus says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. It's pretty remarkable to think that 2,000 years ago, Jesus prayed for you and he prayed for me. And he prayed specifically that we would be one. We've already talked about being united in Christ, but what's added here is that Jesus gives us the reason why we need to be one. The purpose for us to be one is so that the world may believe that God the Father sent God the Son. Interesting. Jesus says that as the church is united, is one, the world will see that Jesus is God. Your next fill in the blank. When we are united in Christ, it's a witness to the world. But on the other hand, when we are divided in Christ, we are a stumbling block for the world. When we are divided in Christ, it gives the world a hurdle they need to jump over before they can come to see who Jesus is. Jesus prays in verse 22. He says, And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Maybe Jesus thought we might miss it. So three times he prays that we would be one, that we would be united together. Jesus wants us to be one, not only so that the world sees that Jesus is God, but so that the world sees that God loves his people. So God says again and again and again, he wants us to be one. We're going to pause right here, and I'm going to pray. We're not done. Don't put your Bibles away. But I want to pray for us to be united in Christ. Because when Jesus tells me three times, I think I better listen. So would you join me? God, we thank you that you've told us clearly what your desire is for us. As we look around the room, we see so much diversity. We look around the county, the state, the world. We see so much diversity in how people worship you. And yet, Lord, you're calling us to be united under your name. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who do things differently, but who worship you and will be there with us in your presence in heaven. And God, we pray that you would give us your heart for them where though we disagree on some non-essentials, Lord, would you help us to be one, distinct but united. Lord, would you help us to be united so that the world would see that you are God and that the world would see that you love your people. Lord, may our unity be a testimony to the lost. And Lord, we recognize we need your Spirit to empower us to be united among such diversity. Thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Finishing up here in verse 24. Jesus says, Father, 
I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Here we see that it is Jesus' desire to dwell with us in heaven. He wants us to be with Him. And it reminds me how we read earlier, Moses, he boldly prayed and he said, Lord, show me your glory. That was Moses' prayer. And yet, did you catch here what Jesus prayed for? Now Jesus prays to the Father and Jesus says, Lord, let me show them my glory. How cool is that? It's not just Moses wanting to know God, but it's Jesus, God the Son, wanting you and I to see Him more intimately, to see and experience His glory in heaven. And we look forward to that day where we get to be with Him and He's going to be in all of His fullness. O righteous Father, verse 25, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me, And I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Two thousand years ago, Jesus prayed for you and for me that we would have God's love in us and that we would have Jesus in us. That's his desire, which brings us to the final measure of success in our life. Do I have the love of God? Jesus in me. It's salvation. Do we have God's love and Jesus in us? Because if we do, then it is evidence that we are saved. And obviously the foundation of pleasing God, of being successful in His eyes, is believing in Him. We see in this chapter how success to God looks very different than success to the world. Take Jesus, for example. In the world's eyes, Jesus was a complete failure. The prestigious religious leaders had rejected Jesus, wrote him off. Jesus was betrayed by a close friend. The rest of his friends abandoned him. He was arrested, beaten, put to death, and buried, and all at around the young age of 33 years old. Jesus left his big vision in the hands of 11 misfit disciples to carry it on. And Jesus died with no home, no possessions, no family. The world says, that was a waste, a failure. And yet God says, perfectly successful. If we seek to live like Jesus lived, if we look through this list of questions we can ask ourselves to see if we're being successful in God's eyes or not, and we truly want to live for Him. We're not guaranteed to get that better paying job. We're not guaranteed to have a more relaxing retirement. But we are guaranteed to hear that whisper in our ear that says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we're living for. That's what our hope is. Let me finish with another of my favorite passages in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. It says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, 
that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. And so may we live to be successful in the eyes of the only one that matters. Live for Him. And may we enjoy the taste of eternal life that we already have now. The taste of knowing God. Knowing Him as a friend, as a Savior, as a Creator, as our Redeemer, as our Heavenly Father. May we seek to know Him more. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful that one of your greatest desires for us is that we would be with you in heaven, with you. That we would not simply be there, but that we would get to enjoy a relationship with you, growing deeper in our knowledge of you, growing closer in that fellowship. And God, we want that now. Lord, as we continue to live on the earth, God, help us to do so seeking to please you, not seeking to please those around us. God, help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Lord, help us to represent you well to this world so that when those that get close to us, they see the way that we act, the way that we speak, the way that we're broken and yet cling to You, Lord, they would see a testimony of You. They would see the Gospel. God, we pray that You would use our lives to bring glory to Your name. And Lord, would You help us to cast aside any distractions, any hindrances in our life that hinders us from knowing You more or from living for your glory. Lord, we surrender to you. Lord, would you do that work in our hearts? Would you accomplish your will in our lives? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me? Let's go ahead and worship the Lord.